If you want to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm looking at a story that um, uh, I'm sure you could probably quote and tell to me. Uh, the story of Jesus going to uh, a region of uh, Israel known as Samaria. And they're stopping at a well to get some water. And a woman comes up to gather water at this place. And Jesus has a conversation with her. And uh, there's something life-transforming that takes place in that conversation. She runs back to the village to tell everybody, and, and the whole village comes out to see this guy that she met. And uh, pretty exciting things that took place in that story. But uh, uh, what I've just told you is what precedes the text I want us to look at here uh, this morning. If you, if you can and you would like, please stand with me as we read from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. It says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Father, I ask that uh, you would uh, open our eyes and to see the fields around us. This morning, I'd ask that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive what your Spirit has to say to us about this conversation that Jesus had. I'd ask, Lord, that you would fill my mind and my, my heart and my mouth with your words. Speak to your people. Speak to me. And Lord, may we be receptive to what you say. We're just gracious, uh, grateful to you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And uh, thank you for the privilege of gathering here this morning. We thank you in Jesus. Amen. Jesus, uh, early in his ministry, uh, uh, had chose 12 people to walk with him, and in the course of that, to teach them, instruct them in the things, the values of life that uh, were going to be best for them, and would be obedient to the Father and fulfill God's purposes uh, in this world. And uh, one of those teaching moments was this time we just read about. The context for us in this is that Jesus and the disciples were headed north to Galilee, and they went. They took the rough route. They took the mountain route to go to Galilee, and it went through Samaria. And it was there they stopped for water at a well, and the disciples went into town to get food because they were hungry. And Jesus stayed there at the well, and this woman approached, and there was a conversation with them about water. <laughs> and uh, Jesus said, "You know, give me a drink." And he said. And this conversation goes on. And in and all of this, it became a religious discussion about uh, those who uh, were Jews but in the north and really weren't Jews because they were Samaritans. They were the scum of the earth to the Jews in Jerusalem who were faithful to the temple and everything. But there was a difficulty in this that here's a Jewish man talking with a Samaritan, let alone a man talking to a woman. There's no one else around. And on top of that, the woman 
was what you would call immoral. Uh, in her village, she was probably known as the prostitute. That's how Jesus describes in the conversation that's going on. And in this conversation, she becomes aware of her need and becomes aware of what he has to say and believes that he is indeed the Messiah who's promised to come. And she's all excited and goes running back to the village and tells everybody, and the whole village is starting to come out. And it's at this time the disciples come and show up with food. They got their bag, they're from Jack in the Box, and, uh, or I don't know how to say that in he- Hebrew. But uh, they were out doing their, coming back in, and they're all concerned that Jesus is not eating his food. And earlier reading this, they're also concerned about why he was talking with a woman and that woman. Uh, but they dismissed that and were concerned about food. And uh, there's such a lesson that's really simple and quick up front for us in this, and that is that the deci- Jesus was there to converse- have conversation with this woman about her eternity about her life and relationship with God. And the disciples were concerned about their stomachs. I said, what's missing in this? And Jesus makes it really clear in his statement, I have food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish what he sent me to do. That's my food. And I weigh that against my own life and in our lives, and I say, what's priorities to us? Is it a world around us that's lost and, they're in, and walking in darkness and in their bondage? Is, is, uh, do we even think about that as priority in our mind to say that I have an answer? I have, I have a good news that I could share with them if they would be interested? Uh, can I engage them maybe even to salt that interest? Is that even on my mind? Or is that just, you know, they'll go to hell if they're going to hell, and, you know, that's the way things are. You know, if they really care, they'd seek God. Well, maybe this woman didn't seem to have uh, a knowledge of Jesus yet. And she had all the religious structures around her. She knew there was a Messiah coming in the conversation. But I ask us, as I ask me, as I go through my day, where are my priorities? And am I conscious of the world around me? Or is Jesus described at the field that's ripe for harvest? And I, that's kind of where I want to go with us here today for a bit. Um, Jesus made a simple statement of observation as a training time for his disciples. And they were obviously distracted by their stomachs and their comfort and their satisfaction. When Jesus sees people, when he sees the field that's ripe for harvest, what does he see? In Matthew chapter 9, it says this, that Jesus, seeing the multitudes, felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. You know, when I see stuff that's going on in the world around me, and uh, I look at it and I'm going, you know, why do they have to be such jerks? You know, I make all my statements, my judgment statements, and I put down and I said, I don't, you know, why am I? You know, Lord, take me home. I want out of here. (laughs) I'm done. But it's interesting that when Jesus saw the, the, the crowd, the multitude, 
He was moved with compassion because he saw their need, not their behavior. And I said, can I learn something from that? Who is it that Jesus seeks? There was a conversation that went on in Jericho. Uh, Jesus went into the town. There was a little short guy who climbed up in a tree because he wanted to see this famous guy that he'd heard about. And his name was Zacchaeus. And uh, Jesus came by, saw him in the tree and said, come on down. I'm coming to your house for lunch today. Uh, That's quite an invitation. Um, And Zacchaeus said, oh yeah, and I'll invite all my friends. And Jesus took a lot of flack for that because Zacchaeus didn't have a good reputation. He worked for the Roman government. He was a tax guy. And, and all the people that his friends were, they're drunkards and they were in trouble. And uh, so they were criticizing Jesus. And to that, he gave this response. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's why he came. We read in Philippians that he was in heaven with the Father and God, equal with God. But he didn't consider that equality of God with something to hang on to and to be proud of and to, be, you know, to, to sit on. But he emptied himself and took on the form of one of his own creation, a human being, and lived out a life for one intent purpose. To demonstrate God's love in his presence. To act out of his life and heart with compassion to demonstrate who God is. And to go to the cross to pay the penalty that all mankind deserves. Death. For the neglect of God. For their self-centeredness. For their rebellion. That's why he came. And he said, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. And in the last, um, in, the, in the night in which um, uh, Jesus was, was raised from the dead, and then in that same day, in the evening, he showed up at the home, a residence of all the disciples gathered after his resurrection. It's the first time they all saw him, and, uh, and he walked through the door or some crazy thing, I don't know what, it's got a different kind of body after resurrection. But uh, he comes in, and his words to him were this, in John twenty twenty one. it reads this, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And I could get a little thought about what these guys were saying, thinking back over those three and a half years they walked with him. What does this mean? We understand he came from God and the Father sent him, but now he's sending us to do the same? And I said, he's telling him, I've come to seek and save the lost, and now I'm sending you to go do the same. In 2 Corinthians 5, and a lot of what I'm saying to you is not new. I'm doing it as a point of reminder to us this morning for for what I think God has for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, Now all these things are from God. Excuse me, in in verse uh, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things uh, have become new. The next verse says, Now all these new things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, 
Paul's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to know you have a new life because of Christ. All things are new. You have, the, you have the resource of the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, and he lives in you. Now dwell on that just a minute. Have you come to faith and recognizing your need for forgiveness and for what Christ did for you on the cross? Have you embraced his cross in your behalf that he died for you there? And in the book, God says that you who believe that have the right to be called the children of God. You're his, your family. And it says here in the book that those who have come to faith are indwelt by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You're a believer in Jesus Christ sitting here this morning. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Ooh, can I shout hallelujah? <laughs> and I'm going, well, that's not my style. But I'm going, looking inside, I said, is that God, why? My life certainly doesn't look like that. What do you want to do in me? What do you want to do through my life? I'm here breathing, taking up space. I'm yours, eternity's mine. Why am I still here? I think if I was God, I'd design it that when you come to faith, you're with me. But he's got a job that's a task that's on his heart and he's moved by compassion for those that are dark and are lost and walking in darkness and in their bondage. And who better to tell them than those who know me? I sent my son, and now I'm sending you. These new things are from God who reconciled us to himself and has given to us who are reconciled the ministry of reconciliation. And then it says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have the message that, that, that people can come and be reconciled with God. Somebody gave that to you. Somebody was a minister of reconciliation in your life that you could hear that message and come to faith and to know him. And there's a pile of people out there who, like you, in the past, did not know. And today, they do not know. You and I are called to be ministers of reconciliation. He goes on to say, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You and I are representatives of Christ. Is there any question about his calling on all of our lives? You're reconciled, you're a reconciler. The Father sent me, I send you. You see, so that calling is on all of us for the life that he, he allows us to remain here. And so my question to us and to me is what is the extent of my faithfulness to that calling in my life? To what degree is that calling a priority as I live out my day? Or is my day about me and my calendar and my schedule and my comfort and, and the way I want things to be? Is there anywhere in that priority, the priority, the calling that God has given to us to represent him in this world? 
and to speak of him and to be ministers of reconciliation. See, those are the things that trouble me. There's a lot of things I get distracted by. Freeway's the main thing. You've probably heard me say that before. I wish I could tell you that's different. But Carla's here, so I can't. You know, I, I, when I'm driving on the freeway, I talk out loud at the other people around me. That helps me with my tension. I don't build up you know, stress about it. I just let it out. But when Carla's driving with me, she hears all that. And I can't believe her. She's something else. For most of my life, she's been the voice of God. I'm grateful. But I'm complaining about some jerk who drove down the freeway and did this or that. You know, they sped up, got in front of me, and then slowed down. And, uh, and I grumble about that. And, and then Carla says, they, they probably were in a hurry to do something, and then they remembered they got a ticket last week, and so they slowed down because they saw their speedometer. You know? She gives me a reason why, a rational reason why somebody did the crazy thing they did. She, she, I, I need her in my life. <laughs> but I, I, I say that only to say that I get so focused in my agenda in the day and where I'm going and how I'm going to get there and I'm going to do a lot, 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 lot of stuff. And then there are times when I'm more, com- I'm more focused in what I want and my comfort and my moment. This is my time, you know. Turn the phone off. I don't want anybody to bother me. I just, uh, and I, I'm just all about me. And Jesus said, what? If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, die daily, and just do what I tell you. Find that in Luke 9.23 if you want. You can find that there. I'm going, he says, you know, I'm his. Live it for him. Do what he calls you to do. And so that's, that's a driver in my life, and I keep bringing that to the surface, and so I annoy you with it. But I, I, I'm here, and I say, God, I want to be found faithful to what you've called me to do and to be about in my life. We are his ambassadors. I want to give you some context to what this world looks like. In, uh, <clears throat> I spoke in the, from John 4 and just spent the whole time pretty much in that text two and a half years ago here with you. I was kind of surprised when I found that. I even, in putting things together this morning, I gave it a title and, and then discovered that was the title I used two and a half years ago. And I'm going, Oops. And so I, I, I would, I was, the message isn't all that different. I told Mike about this, and he says, that's okay. We need to hear it again until we actually start practicing it. I'm going, oops. And so here we are, and uh, I'm looking. There were some slides that I showed you about our world. Um, there's a, an organization called uh, Joshua Project. You can find them at joshuaproject.net. It's really fun. Um, but you go on there, and this group, Joshua Project, has identified all the distinctions that can be made among people around the world. Uh, their language, their culture, their history, their geography, uh, a whole lot of different qualifications that, that make distinguish, uh, distinctions among different peoples, ethnic groups. And, um, and they refer to these people, these differences, as people groups. And they use the word nations in the same way that it's used in the scripture. In the scripture, there's a word uh, ethne that's translated nations. And it means ethnics. It doesn't mean countries like geopolitical boundary places. But uh, nations are peoples or people groups. 
And Joshua Projects has identified 16,709 people groups in our world. And they're in, they're in consultation with mission organizations all over the globe, and they're always dialoguing with their data and their information that's there. But they've all, all the mission organizations have embraced this, as this is how we're going to function as we look at our world. And um, of that 16,000, 7,037 are called unreached nations, meaning less than 5% of the population are believers. And it's an arbitrary number in one sense. They said it takes at least 5% believers in a location to create a movement, a momentum to share the gospel throughout a, a, an area among a people. And, uh, and so there's 7,000 that are regarded as unreached out of 16,000. And then out of that 7,000, there's another designation that's been um, surfaced here in just recent years, and that's called the unengaged unreached. And in our world today, there are 2,367 unengaged people groups. And what that means is there's no known believer, there's no church, and there's no one going to them to the knowledge of all the researchers. Unengaged. They have no way to hear the gospel. They have no way to see it fleshed out. And some of these people groups may number 250 people, or they may number a million and a half people. But there are people groups in our world that are unengaged. 2,367. There's an organization called Finishing the Task. It's led by Paul Eshelman, who founded the Jesus film and for 25 years uh, led the distribution of that, that movie all over the world. But he stepped aside from his work there with Jesus Film to uh, head up Finishing the Task Network. And he's called together 60 um, organizations, mission organizations and individuals who he has identified are intent on reaching the unengaged in our world. And he's called the, the whole network Finishing the Task. And um, there's a map that's here that uh, Paul, you can see that there's colors. On it. It's a little fuzzy there because it blew up funny. But the, um, the white dots that you see there are the unengaged, no believer, no church, nobody going to them. And that's where they're located in the world. And the blue dots are um, people groups that are still unengaged, but somebody's here in the U.S. and around the world, there's groups of believers who've chosen that people group to pray for them, that God would open the door. They've been adopted by their terminology, but no one's gone yet. And the green group are those who've been adopted and someone's starting to go. There are churches, there are individuals that are sending people to go spend time in, among the people to learn to, to be a part of their life and to see what doors God may open up. Now, where are all these people, these unengaged people groups? Where's the bulk of them? North Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia. Who lives there? The Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist. Those are so ingrained in a religious cultural structure there's just huge barriers for anybody coming to bring any thought that's different than what they were raised with. But they're yet unengaged and unreached and don't know Jesus. And I said, that's part of the fields that Jesus said, lift your eyes and look. 
they're ripe for harvest. I said, ripe for harvest? I go to some of those countries, they cut my head off if I speak his name. Maybe. Or maybe that's some lie that somebody wants you to believe. Do they not yet walk in darkness and bondage and recognize that? The desire to be free in their heart and their life. How is that ever going to happen? Well, our world in 2012, of the unengaged who had populations of 40,000 or more, there were 1,050 two years ago. In December, when I met with the Finishing the Task Network, there were 459. And not only that, they dropped the number from 40,000 to 25,000. There's progress. People are actually reaching people in our world. Alan, this week, is headed to one of those territories. And I pray desperately for my buddy. I know he's in God's care, but I just have to pour out my heart. I said, Lord, protect him. He's walking into a city where it's full of refugees, many believers in Jesus, who have fled because their children and family have been shot down, heads cut off, and, and they're all, he's going to that place. And he's going there with, with compassion and with help and trying to, to, to purchase housing for people to live in as refugees. And, and they're doing it through local churches in the community. So those who come know it's the church and they, they're hearing it in their own language, but it's there in the north of Iraq. And I'm going... We can reach those who are lost. And you've got nothing to fear. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And I am with you always. Therefore, go. I don't understand why we're still here. I came to faith in Jesus. I have eternal life. Take me home. Don't forget this. So why do we keep track of these kind of statistics? In Matthew 24, Jesus answered the question, so when is the end going to come? And he responded to them and said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so we keep track of the stats because we want to be a part of finishing the task, and I don't know how you do that, you know, but there's some data that's here that's helpful and motivational to us and gives us direction. And I said, I want to share. But I want you to know something that also is true. Many of these people who are around the world in unengaged people groups live in Orange County now because they immigrated here. They're less than an hour from you. Can we take interest in those who have, who have come to our country? who live in our community, can we show some interest in them? You know, how you doing in finding work? How you doing with uh, housing, you know, and the kids and the school and stuff? Uh, can I help you in some way? Just show interest and see what happens. Two-thirds of the world respond out of relationship 
not reason. And when you show interest and concern and sincerity in their life, they welcome you as family and trust is present and you can say anything you want. And they ask you about this faith that you talk about. So the door is wide open to us. The Grace Brethren, and we're affiliated with them, had been missional all the years that they've existed. There's 250 Grace Brethren churches in the U.S. And um, uh, there are 3,000, more than 3,000 Grace Brethren churches around the world. And it's all because of the initial efforts of us. As a church, our first... uh, missionary was Kwanja Park, a Korean gal that we helped send to Brazil. And I don't think there's probably many in this room we ever heard that name before. She was the first of a whole long string of people. I don't know what there is now, five, six families that have come out of this church that are now in ministry full-time and serving were a part of their support. So there's things happening in our world because of our engagement with it. The Grace Brethren have been involved in Latin America since uh, 1902. Uh, A man, Bauman, went there. And he was met with great hostility by the Catholics. Uh, I can't say he was stoned, but he had rocks thrown at him a lot wherever he went as he presented the gospel of Christ. Well, they started in Argentina... Now, today, Argentina, the churches of Argentina are sending their own missionaries out to Paraguay, Uruguay, and Chile, and to Chad in North Africa and to North African countries because Bowen went. What can happen out of one life? And then the, the message went to Brazil, and uh, uh, Phil Grania went to Mexico City and, uh, and led a whole bunch of people to the Lord. There's a church there. And from there, they went to Guatemala. And from there, they went to Cuba. And then a church in Alaska, Soldat in Alaska, uh, hooked up with some people that were building homes in Nicaragua uh, for refugees. Uh, People from out, not refugees as such, but people who fled the city because they couldn't live there anymore and they were living out in the country in shacks. And they were building homes for them. So they went down three years doing that and we sent a group of people to participate with them one year. Today, there's three churches in Nicaragua. And that all initiated out of a church, a local church. Uh, So what can we do? And then uh, uh, we find uh, in Africa, the work there began in 1918, uh, a man, James Gribble. He was a a conductor, a a streetcar conductor in Philadelphia. And it's a bunch of traumatic stuff in his life. And he, in in that context, came to faith in Christ. And and it was only but a few years that... uh, Uh, He had a sense that God wanted him to go to the darkest of Africa where no man had ever spoken the gospel before. And he went, and he went to the Central African Republic, dead core center of the continent. And he shared the gospel there. He only lived about seven years and he died, but others followed him. He was the first to plant the seed of the gospel there. And today there are 2,800 churches. Half of the country, the population of the Central African Republic are believers. And one man, a nobody, no college education, no seminary, no ministry training, just had a passion to go share the good news that he heard. 
Don't sell yourself short as to what God can do in your life and through your life. Well, there's other places. We went to Asia in the 80s. And um, if I missed a continent here, I'm just falling down. Europe, uh, we, were, we were in Europe in, um, uh, in the 60s and uh, involved there in uh, France and in Germany and then went to England and Ireland and then went to Portugal and, um, and to Spain. The Czech Republic got stuck in there too and, and we continue to go out. Some of the churches in France are going to Hungary now. Um, and some are concerning, have been made some contact in Romania as well. And all I'm trying to say something to you, because somebody went, there's momentum, and believers in that country are now taking leadership on their own, and they're sending their own out to places. And it's because one went and planted the seed of the gospel. You can do that. I'm Ed Trenner. I'm a snot-nosed kid from Moses Lake, Washington, Podunkville. Who am I engaged in global mission? It's not me, it's God. It's the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, and He lives in you. And can I do anything less than what God calls me to do? Can I be anything less? And I don't do it because I'm commanded to. I do it because God's given me a compassion for people who don't know. And that same calling's in our lives. And we can respond with the same understanding. There are people who need. Their behavior is junk. It's repulsive. But they're lost. And that's why they're living the way they're living. Can I go give them some good news that brings light into their life and sets them free? I can do that. Well, countries, we're in Asia, and uh, there's, a, there's a team there in Cambodia now of nationals that are leading the ministry, and the, the, the young man, and I'm going to go ahead and show you the screen that's there. Uh, Chai is in the middle, kneeling, and uh, he's leading the work that's there now, and we've we got a team from our church that's going to be there with him just to assist him, help them, and do some training for them. But it's their work, and it's all because we helped send a young man, Steve Wise, to Cambodia, I, it's just, we have a part in all of this. And now we're here in North America and we're finding that the world's coming to us. You know, there's sometimes when you do the same message twice, Mike, you can't remember you know, what you said first or second or whatever. It's, I don't know if I told you this or not. Did I talk to you about Orange County? Right, it's just simple as this. We moved here in uh, 42 years ago, a million and a half people, 70% Caucasian, 30% Hispanic. That was population. Ballpark. There, I mean, there are other people too, but generally. 2010 census, we're three and a half million, two million more. The population now is 40% Hispanic, 30% Asian, and 30% Caucasian. And what's interesting is, in, in 40 years ago, the 70% Caucasian had a population number. You can figure it out, math, but I don't do well at that but 70% of a million and a half. That population number is the same number that today is 30% of the population here. What that says to me is the two million increase in population in Orange County in 40 years are Hispanic and Asian primarily. 70% of the population of the world that lives around you, the field in which we live, 70% are from another country, this generation or the one that preceded them. 
We have work to do. We have opportunity in front of us. Well, I work with Encompass World Partners, sending the message and saying the things I'm saying to you right now. And I've been doing it for seven years, and I've been doing it primarily in a big way because of your contribution to me, your support of Carla and I as uh, we seek to serve the churches here in the West. Seven years ago, there were three churches that were actively involved in mission beyond giving some money to missionaries. And that's necessary and must happen, but they, as individuals were not engaged. Today, 30 of the 40-some churches, they're engaged big time in their congregation and mission. And it, all ha- it has in part to do with a rabble-rouser that you sent. My friends, when they see me come and smile and say, here comes trouble, because I just don't let people sit still in, in their life. I just I want, I want to stir up and say, get engaged in what God's called you to be faithful. That Lift your eyes. Look at the field. I'm in Soldatna. I said, who are the internationals in your community? Ed, we don't have any internationals in Soldatna, Alaska. We're 30,000 people, and we're all white rednecks. You know? And I'm going, well, who runs the Mexican restaurant up the street? Who cooks the food there? Oh, probably a Mexican from someplace. Oh, okay. Well, let's go to lunch. We go to lunch. We meet the, ma- the owner, and he's a, a Mexican. And we meet the, the waiter, and that's his brother. And we meet the chef, and he's a Mexican. And I say, you do really good English. And uh, you like my do, do, you do really good English? And, um, and he said, well, thank you, but I, I really need to learn more. And I said, if, if there were classes available for you to help you improve your English, would you be interested? Where are they? And I said, well, if we make them available, do you think there'd be people interested? And he said, of course, I'll bring my whole family. And he starts naming his family and extended family. There's 20 people. But there's no internationals in their community. So all I'm trying to say is we're blind because we don't lift our eyes and see. I said, let's lift our eyes and see what's here around us and engage it because that's what God has called us to do. How do I be faithful to his calling? It may be going across the seas. It may be going across the street. It may mean sending others across the seas and praying for them and to pray for those that they reach. It may mean praying for our neighbors. There's a natural, simple way of simply planting seeds. In Colossians 4, it says this, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Simply be gracious and have conversation with people and salt your language with God talk. I'm so grateful to God for this. I, you know, I, I'm... You know, I'm so blessed. You know, God is so good. I can say things. And they're going to, before long in conversation, because you've shown interest, they're going to say, who is this God you're talking about? I can tell you, it just happens. It's not, it's not difficult. My most introspective, introverted friend is doing it today. And he's got the joy of being able to share the gospel with people he would have never done before, but he does now.
Peter says, let Christ be, in the, uh, be Lord in your heart. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have. This is Trenor paraphrase. Give a reason for the hope that you have, offering your answer with gentleness and respect. And that implies a question, meaning you've had conversation and they're asking you. So you want to plant the seed. Be a humble learner. Ask questions and listen to understand not to create an agenda. Be a humble learner. Show interest and compassion in the people that you're with. That'll open their hearts. They'll tell your story. And when they tell you their story, they'll want to know yours. Speak what is real in your life, including your faith. Live a credible life and faith. It'll be attractive and it'll be convicting. It'll give authenticity to the things that you share about your faith. Plant seeds of faith. Include God in your conversations. Offer to pray for people. You are the presence of Jesus in a world that's lost. And you've been called to lift your eyes and look to the harvest. It's ripe. So some of those people out you know are ready And God's waiting for you to be responsible to him. Be moved with compassion for him. Let God do something in your heart and your life. And I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying if you aren't, then feel bad about it. (laughs) You know, it's just God's called us to be faithful to him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for the privilege of representing you in this world. Thank you for the confidence that it's not us, it's you. And you just ask us to make ourselves available. And so we come and we offer ourselves to you in Jesus. Amen.